We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 113 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, August 2nd. 2021. Has anyone else been added to the Washington football team's reserve COVID-19 list? I don't know. I haven't checked Twitter in the last five minutes. Let me go check. Jeez, the hits just keep on coming. Six players added to the list over the previous four days, Thursday through Sunday. Three players added to the list over the last two days, Saturday and Sunday, including Brandon Sheriff, and Deron Payne, although Payne on Sunday evening tweeted, quote, I do not have COVID, end quote. That's where we're at with all of this COVID-19 stuff with the Washington football team. Players feel compelled to tweet out that they do not have the Rona. If only training camp was just about Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke, to whatever extent that exists, or Wes Schweitzer versus Eric Flowers. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, But sadly, such is not the case. The COVID-19 thing continues to be a thing of multiple developments over the weekend, including extended words from Ron Rivera at his post-training camp practice press conference on Saturday. A full breakdown coming up in just a bit. But hello and welcome to another week of the Al Galdi podcast, show one of five this week, because that's what we do. A new show each weekday out by 5 a.m., waiting for you when you wake up. We have a lot to get to with the Washington football team, in addition to all the COVID-19 stuff. Tanya Snyder was out in full force as co-CEO at Fan Appreciation Day at training camp in Richmond on Saturday. I will discuss that next segment. And we will talk actual football. Imagine that with the Washington football team, including Rod Rivera on multiple guys who have stood out in training camp so far. The Nationals, off completing an all-time sell-off on Friday, won two of three games against the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park over the weekend, and now on Monday night, we'll start one of the top pitching prospects in the sport, Josiah Gray, who was acquired from the Los Angeles Dodgers in the sell-off. We have a lot to get into with the Nats. Get into all of that, we shall. What's going to happen with the Wizards on this Monday? NBA free agency begins Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, which is when teams officially can begin to negotiate with free agents. We had stuff out there regarding the Wiz over the weekend of the reported but still not official trade of Russell Westbrook to the Los Angeles Lakers. I'll talk Wizards later in the show. I'll talk Orioles as well. A four-game split for them 
at the Detroit Tigers as Matt Harvey, a.k.a. Oral Hershiser, in 1988, now has a scoreless inning streak of 18 and the third innings. Where the heck did this come from? And why couldn't this have come just a few weeks ago so that the O's could have flipped him and gotten something for him prior to Friday's MLB trade deadline? You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Stevie Smokes. He writes, I decided to mute all local media covering the Washington football team with the exception of Al Galdi and Kevin Sheehan. I've only checked in with fan podcasts and WFT fan Twitter so far in camp. So much better coverage than any in recent memory. Well, I appreciate that, Stevie. You're a smart man. We provide on this podcast, I believe, the very best coverage of the Washington football team. All of the important topics, all of the important data that you won't hear discussed anywhere else, all of the important audio. No other show or podcast is giving you all of these key things that are said in these press conferences. It is good to have you on board. If you know of someone looking for more or better coverage of the Washington football team, please be a friend and tell a friend about the Al Galdi podcast. Also, please consider subscribing to the podcast if you don't already do so. Subscribing costs you nothing. And please, if you have like 30 seconds to spare, give the podcast a five-star rating and write a brief review saying how much you like the podcast. Doing those things helps out a lot. I mentioned the Washington football team press conferences. Guess what we got during Ron Rivera's post-training camp practice press conference on Saturday. So Brandon Sheriff did not practice on Saturday due to being placed on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington moved Wes Schweitzer to right guard and had Eric Flowers at left guard. Ron got asked if that would be the plan in the regular season if Washington found itself without Sheriff for whatever reason. And pay close attention to Ron's answer. Listen for the phrase that pays. We had a lot of combinations going out there. Sadiq Charles is another guy that we, you know, we, we want to look at as well. But, you know, with, with David getting, you know, going down as well, you know, we had to keep him a little bit outside instead of really giving him an opportunity to move inside. So there's a lot of impact and a lot of effect that happens when something like this um, and I know you guys talk. To, I talk about it all the time. It's position flex. You know that's the nice thing about having guys with that kind of ability. You know, we have you know we have some young guys that, that can play two positions or three for that matter. So it's not as concerning uh, for now. Um, but I promise you, if this was the regular season, it'd be concerning. So there it was, position flex. Our second position flex reference of 2021. Washington football team training camp from Ron Rivera. Well, one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Grandland of Real Broker. I know he has a smile on his face right now because while Ron is the master of position flex, John Grandland, aka John G, is the OG of what we like to call commission flex. And so if you need to sell your home and aren't sure to whom to turn, if you've been trying to sell your home and you're not satisfied with how things are going, if you're even just thinking about selling your home, contact my guy, John Grandlin. You have nothing to lose. And make sure you ask him about commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. You see, not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. John Grandlin is changing the game. Flexible 
commission rates. Let John Granlund put a marketing plan together for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. You see, John Granlund has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, you heard that right. For free, some conditions apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Granlin. Call him now, 703-537-6747. John Granlin is a great guy, terrific sense of humor, big sports fan, big Washington football team fan, big Nationals fan. But most importantly, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And when you call him, make sure you ask him about what you keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast, Commission Flex. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. Or visit johngsellsforfree.com. That's John G. Salesforfree.com. John Granlin. Nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, John G. is the OG of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron. Just like Position Flex. All right, so the portion of 2021 Washington football team training camp in Richmond is complete. Camp started in Richmond last Tuesday, July 27th, lasted in Richmond through Saturday, July 31st. No practice for Washington on Sunday, but there is practice at the team facility in Ashburn on Monday. As yes, camp now will be taking place in Ashburn moving forward. So with this past Saturday being the final day of 2021 Washington football team training camp in Richmond, we had fan appreciation day. A day for you, the fans. Or as Vinny Serrato once said, for the fans. For the fans. Yes, Vinny, for the fans. And perhaps nothing at fan appreciation day stood out more than the presence of Tanya Snyder. Yes, wife of Dan Snyder, aka wife of Danny Boy. And of course, the new co-CEO of the Washington football team. Remember, the Washington football team on June 29th, announced that Tanya had been named co-CEO of the team. Coincidentally, just two days before we learned of the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation into the team's sexual harassment scandal. And of course, one of the outcomes was that Tanya, as co-CEO, was assuming responsibilities of CEO and overseeing all day-to-day team operations and representation of the club on all league activities, and that Dan would be concentrating his time, as he put it in a statement, quote, during the next several months on developing a new stadium plan and other matters, end quote. Boy, what were the odds? Tanya gets named co-CEO on June 29th, and then the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation comes out on July 1st. Golly gee, that sure seemed to time out well, didn't it? Uh, Anyway, Tanya is co-CEO. She, in theory, is overseeing all day-to-day team operations. We have no idea how true that is. We do know, though, that Tanya has been more involved. We had signs of this long before she was named co-CEO. Take you back to July 17th, 2020. It was on that day that we had the reveal of an internal memo that had been sent to Washington employees in the wake of the first article by the Washington Post on the sexual harassment scandal. The memo was attributed to both Dan and Tanya Snyder. This past May 20th, uh, there was a video published by TMZ Sports of TMZ Sports interviewing Dan Snyder while he and others toured stadiums in Los Angeles. Among the others was Tanya Snyder. 
Uh, and then this past June 2nd, Ron Rivera at a post-OTA practice press conference got asked about Washington the previous day, having announced the hiring of Dr. Barbara Roberts as the team's first full-time director of wellness and clinical services. Ron's answer included him saying, quote, I really do appreciate the Snyders seeing the importance of making sure that we are proactive with our players' mental health, end quote. So Ron said, the Snyders, not the Snyder, not the Danny boy, but the Snyders, as in Dan and Tanya Snyder. So Tanya has been more involved with the Washington football team. That much is true. And so what ended up taking place on Saturday was essentially Tanya Snyder's debut as co-CEO. Tanya was on full display as new co-CEO on Fan Appreciation Day, what was the final day of Washington football team training camp in Richmond. She spoke to a crowd on a live mic. I mean, how often has Dan done that? Said Tanya in part, quote, I have been on the sidelines for 22 years and I'm much more active and involved now with my husband. We couldn't be more excited about our new leadership. They're so strong outside of football and the best in their class of everything they've done. So you're going to see a lot of great growth and listening to all of our fans, end quote. Also on Fan Appreciation Day in Richmond on Saturday was Tanya throwing t-shirts to fans in the crowd. And this got a lot of run. Everyone on the planet tweeted out video of this. If you're on Twitter and you follow the Washington football team beat reporters, your feed on Saturday was inundated with videos of Tanya Snyder tossing t-shirts. But this was a fun, you know, charming thing that she did. She got into it. She had fun with it. Uh, She threw overhand. She threw underhand. She even threw sidearms. She was like Patrick Mahomes throwing from all kinds of arm angles. So yeah, it was something unique seeing Tanya out there acting like this. What does all of this mean? In the grand scheme of things, not much. But the optics were great. The optics were refreshing. A sharp contrast to the recluse that her husband essentially has been for years. Now, to the idea of what truly is Tanya's power. Is she really, truly overseeing all day-to-day team operations, or is her serving as co-CEO a mere cover for Dan, still overseeing things, and her appointment as co-CEO was a total public relations move? I don't know. It's impossible to know right now. There's no doubt that there was PR value in appointing Tanya as co-CEO. You can't ignore the timing of a woman being named co-CEO of the Washington football team two days before the outcome of a major investigation into a sexual harassment scandal for the team comes out. I mean, who are we kidding here? Remember, the team has been pumping out its chest as all of a sudden being a leader in the NFL when it comes to being progressive. The press release announcing Tanya Snyder as Washington's co-CEO included the following, quote, Mrs. Snyder is one of few female CEOs in NFL history, furthering the Washington football team's commitment to being a standard bearer of diversity and inclusion in sports, end quote. I mean, please spare me the self-congratulations, all right? So if you're skeptical about why Tanya was appointed co-CEO, if you're skeptical about Tanya truly having power right now, I hear you and I don't blame you. But I will say this, Tanya Snyder isn't just some blonde airhead trophy wife, okay? She may be a former fashion model. Did you know that, by the way? She's a former fashion model. But she has a lot more going for her than just that. Uh, Tanya Snyder has done a lot in terms of charity work. She, since 2000, had led the Washington Football Charitable Foundation, which, yes, has been used to generate a lot of good publicity, but which also, yes, has legitimately done a lot of good work. The foundation at the time of Tanya being named co-CEO 
had given back more than $29 million to the DMV community per the press release from the team. I mean, that's not nothing. Whatever you want to say about the motives, $29 million, that's a good chunk of change to be giving back to the community. Uh, Tanya Snyder is a breast cancer survivor, uh, has been very active in breast cancer awareness, including helping to introduce the Think Pink campaign to the NFL all the way back in 1999. And Tanya Snyder is someone who, unlike her husband, comes off as poised and polished in interviews. That's not to say that not coming off as poised and polished in interviews makes you a terrible person, but Tanya pretty clearly has public speaking qualities that Dan does not. I found this interesting. Washington football team president Jason Wright told ESPN in a piece that was published on Saturday of a time in which Tanya helped to settle a heated debate that Jason was having with Dan and Tanya Snyder. Quote, Tanya stepped in and said, I'm going to end this conversation right now. Here are the facts that matter most. And she looked at Dan and said, these are the three facts that matter most. Do we agree on those? We agree. So we can stop debating on any of those things on the periphery of those. It is clear what the direction forward was. That incisiveness she brought where we were having real friction was really important. When we're having our meetings, I am setting the agenda and I am bringing the business strategy to them and they're reacting like good founders and board of directors will do. That dynamic has worked really well, end quote. And of course, Jason Wright isn't going to publicly trash Tanya Snyder, but I thought that a specific anecdote like that was notable. Look, maybe Tanya Snyder is like a monster behind the scenes, all right? Maybe she's like Claire Underwood in House of Cards, as nasty and manipulative as they come. And or maybe Tanya Snyder doesn't have any real power. Maybe this whole thing about her overseeing all day-to-day team operations is a lie, a con, a work, a ruse, and Dan hasn't gone anywhere. There's still a lot about what both the NFL and Dan announced about Dan's role with the team. That's odd. This suspension, you know, that isn't really a suspension. The whole thing is still very confusing. And I feel like there's a lot more to this that we still don't know. All I hope for is this. Dan, Tanya, or whoever is truly overseeing things stays out of the way of Ron Rivera and the football people. Let the football people do the football things. Let Don Ron and company do their thing. But I will say this for Tanya. She is likable. She is personable. And she, at the very least, puts a positive public face on the Washington football team that the team hasn't had in a very long time. Well, speaking of likable, we very much like one of the great supporters of the Al Galdi podcast, Dr. George Verghese. He's a big Washington football team fan. He's also the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He's a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland focuses on medical dermatology and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. Very important work, obviously. Among the things offered by Dr. Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, something very special and cutting edge, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is revolutionary. It's a non-surgical skin cancer treatment that's safe and effective. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects that go with surgery. You have options. Understand that a non-surgical option in SRT is available. 
Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. If you or someone you know is suffering from skin cancer, first of all, we hope that you or that someone you know is doing well. But second of all, find out what can be done for you by calling Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. The phone number is 301 396 3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. Or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. All right, so from a football standpoint, the biggest item for the Washington football team from the last few days is Washington placing three more players on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Saturday put Brandon Sheriff and David Sharp on the reserve COVID-19 list. Washington on Sunday put Deron Payne on the reserve COVID-19 list, although Payne on Sunday evening tweeted, quote, I do not have COVID, end quote. Uh, you know, Sheriff, you know, Payne. David Sharp is an offensive tackle. Washington re-signed him in March. Uh, this coming season will be just his age 26 season. Washington got Sharp via trade with the Las Vegas Raiders last September 1st. Washington got Sharp and a 2021 seventh round draft pick from the Raiders for a 2021 sixth round draft pick. Sharp actually started two games last season, started at right tackle uh, due to left tackle Cornelius Lucas being inactive for two straight games due to an ankle injury. Morgan Moses, as you may recall, started at left tackle for the two games that Lucas missed. And the two games that Sharp started were Washington wins, the 29 win over the Cincinnati Bengals at FedEx Field in Week 11, and the 41-16 blowout win at the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving. But yeah, man, Payne, Sheriff, and Sharp all now on the reserve COVID-19 list, joining four other Washington players, the aforementioned Cornelius Lucas, Curtis Samuel, Matt Ioannidis, and Chris Miller, who is a corner. So Washington already has placed seven players on the reserve COVID-19 list. This off Washington last regular season, placing just two players on a COVID-19 list, and neither player was on the active roster. Matt Ioannidis was on the reserve injured list, and Javon Leak was on the practice squad. Ron Rivera, at his post-practice press conference on Saturday, and this was prior to the Duran Payne news, uh, on having so many guys out due to COVID-19 protocols already, especially considering that training camp just got going last Tuesday. And that's part of the problems. I mean, to be very honest, it, that's, that's going to make things difficult, and that's the thing we have to be aware of. Um, you know, it, it makes us dip, it'll make it difficult in terms of everybody working together, uh, difficult on, on, on us as coaches with our evaluations, you know, and, and, and the scouts, um, and, and it'll be difficult on the, on, on the player. Um, you know, because having time off, not really getting an opportunity to work and, and develop and grow um, and learning, that, that's, 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 the, that's the downfall and that's the downside. You know, and, and, I, you know and, and, I, and I mentioned it to our guys. I said, you know, here's the what if scenario. What if this had been game day Sunday for the opener? Uh, and even though it's only contact tracing for some of them, that's five days. So if this is the opener, imagine this. Opening against San Diego, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 
playing Thursday night against the Giants, those guys would not be eligible. So to me, it brings the reality of, of, of what the rules are. And, and I hope it helps. Um, but again, you know, these young men have to make you know, their decisions. Yeah, so two things there. Number one, if you're in a competition and you're out due to COVID-19 protocols, uh, that's a problem. Cornelius Lucas being placed on the reserve COVID-19 list last Tuesday in no way bodes well for him in his competition with Samuel Cosme for the starting right tackle job, especially considering that the job may well have been Cosme's to lose to begin with. Number two, as Ron said, what if this was the regular season? Washington's week one game is against the Chargers, who now are in Los Angeles, uh, not San Diego, as Ron said. San Diego. Yes, as the great Ron Burgundy said, San Diego. Uh, Washington's regular season opener is against the Chargers, formerly of San Diego, uh, at FedEx Field. And then Washington's week two game is just four days later against the New York Giants at FedEx Field in a Thursday nighter. Washington will begin its 2021 regular season with two games in five days. A guy being out for the week one game against the Chargers due to COVID-19 protocols very much runs the risk of being out for the week two game against the Giants. Now, remember, just because a guy is on the reserve COVID-19 list doesn't mean that that guy has COVID-19. He could just be a close contact, right? I mentioned the tweet from Deron Payne on Sunday evening, him saying, I don't have COVID-19. But going on the reserve COVID-19 list does mean that the guy is out for at least a little while. And we know that it is much easier for a player who has not been vaccinated for COVID-19 to go on the reserve COVID-19 list due to the NFL's stricter protocols for players who have not been vaccinated for COVID-19. Remember, fully vaccinated individuals exposed to a COVID-positive individual are not labeled as high-risk close contacts and thus are not subjected to mandatory five-day isolations. I will say this about Sheriff. He did a post-practice press conference on Friday and was wearing a mask. You don't have to wear a mask at training camp if you have been vaccinated for COVID-19. Also, the other two players who did post-practice press conferences on Friday were wearing masks, Landon Collins and Taylor Heineke. Now, you know, maybe these guys just love wearing masks. But again, you don't have to wear a mask at training camp if you have been vaccinated for COVID-19. So especially in the case of Sheriff, who on Saturday was placed on the reserve COVID-19 list, that would seem to suggest that he has not been vaccinated for COVID-19. Now, if you are among those who want more of Washington's players to get vaccinated for COVID-19, and personally, I am, if for no other reason than the football reason, the competitive disadvantage that is having a low player vaccination rate for COVID-19, we did have this good news on Saturday. Washington's player vaccination rate for COVID-19 has gone up and by a decent amount. Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post on Saturday afternoon tweeted that Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate among players was at at least 70%. It was just two Thursdays ago, July 22nd, that Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington tweeted that Washington's COVID-19 vaccination rate among players was between 50 and 60%. And it was just on July 16th that we had multiple reports that Washington still had a COVID-19 player vaccination rate of less than 50%. So that's progress, right? From less than 50% to between 50 and 60% to, as of Saturday, at least 70%. And Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Saturday said that more players were set to get vaccinated for COVID-19 
on Sunday. This was Ron at his post-practice press conference on Saturday. He was asked whether he is still frustrated with Washington's COVID-19 player vaccination rate situation. You'll hear him say tomorrow, that is a reference to Sunday. Um, we'll see tomorrow. You know, tomorrow we're, 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 we're hoping, you know, we can get some more guys uh, vaccinated. And but we'll see. Uh, again, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult topic. You know, I, I've, I've tried to approach it with a lot of our players, talk to a lot of our guys that haven't. Um, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's a personal thing. Uh, hopefully we can, but we can sway them, hopefully. Now, Ron last week admitted to being immune deficient due to his battle with cancer last year. We know that most people overwhelmingly do just fine with COVID-19. It is the vulnerable portion of the population that you worry about, right? The elderly, those with pre-existing conditions. Well, Ron has a pre-existing condition. Ron on Saturday got asked if he has appealed to players to get vaccinated for COVID-19 because he is immune deficient. Well, I think just, you know, making the statement that I'm immune deficient, hopefully is, is part of their conversation, part of their thought process. But, you know, again, it is personal decision. And, you know, we, we just hope that, you know, again, you know, we can get more guys vaccinated. Yeah. So I would say that guilt to me is uh, not the way to go with this. Trying to guilt trip players into getting vaccinated for COVID-19 is the wrong approach. But it doesn't sound like Ron is just trying to make his players who haven't been vaccinated for COVID-19, feel guilty. He's having real conversations with these guys. To that end, here was Ron on Saturday on his conversations with players. I I think there's some, there's some, you know, some deep thought going on from some of these guys. Um, There is some concern about the vaccine when, when you talk to guys. And then you try to explain to them, hey, just remember, these vaccines weren't developed like a normal vaccine because these things were worked on seven days a week, 24 hours a day. The, the information that was being given out there to each other, they were sharing their knowledge, what they were learning. Um, and as we found that some of the vaccine, some of its components have already been developed because, again, for the most part, it's, it's a, it's, if, as I understand it, it's, it's similar to some of the things that have been out there. So... It's not like, you know, they started from scratch. It's not like what happened, you know, in, in 1917 with the Spanish flu, where they were starting from scratch. Um, so there's a little bit more to it, and I don't think it's been given enough credit. Um, you know, and plus, it's been going in people's arms, you know, for about eight, nine months. And so there is that information that's out there as well. So, you know, I, I just think it's a matter of these guys being educated and understanding because it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's fair when you sit down and talk to these guys and listen to them and listen to their true concerns. Um, and I, I think some guys just don't know. Uh, and I've gotten a sense that there are a few guys that have dug in so hard so much that they're not going to back down. So that's, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's part to me that's concerned because I care about all these guys. I, I really do. And their families. And, and you do worry that somebody might catch it and go home and pass it on to, to a family member. Some really good points there from Ron. There is so much stuff out there about COVID-19, the vaccines, what's real, what's fake, what's objective, what's politically influenced. You have no idea. I'll give you a perfect example of how misleading things can be. So this guy, Ken Delanian of NBC News on Saturday, put out a tweet of an NBC News article with the following as the lead-in for the link to the story, quote, exclusive. At least 125,000 fully vaccinated Americans 
tested positive for COVID, end quote. Again, at least 125,000 fully vaccinated Americans tested positive for COVID. So if you just read that, you maybe slash probably say to yourself, oh my God, these COVID-19 vaccines, they're worthless. All of these people who have been fully vaccinated for COVID-19 have tested positive for COVID-19, at least 125,000. Golly gee, what shall we do? And then if you click on the link and read the article, you read right beneath the headline of the piece, the following. The 125,682,000 breakthrough cases represent less than 0.08% of the 164.2 million plus people fully vaccinated since January. That's it. 0.08%. That tweet was pure clickbait. And it worked. I'm talking about it right now. But that to me is classic fear mongering from the mainstream media, which so often in this pandemic has been shameful with the blatant spreading of fear to drive up viewership and clicks. Just ridiculous. 0.08%. And the tweet makes it sound like the world is ending in terms of so many people who have been vaccinated for COVID-19 testing positive for COVID-19. I don't know this guy, Ken Delanian. Maybe he's a great guy. Maybe he didn't even compose that tweet. But that tweet to me was ridiculous. And I just wanted to share that with you because I got a kick out of that on Saturday. And I feel like that's emblematic of so much of the coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. So yeah, trying to figure out what's real and what's not Good luck. It's been very difficult throughout this whole saga. But back to Ron. So here's something significant. Ron, in addition to being immune deficient, also is still dealing with the effects of having battled cancer, i.e. fatigue. He talked about this during his post-practice press conference on Friday. Take a listen. We'll start with the question from Washington football team insider Nikki Javala of the Washington Post. Ron, I, I know you said you're still dealing with a lot of fatigue and stuff from your treatments and everything. How are you holding up during all this, especially with the later uh, walkthroughs? Is there, do you have to adjust your schedule at all with that? Yeah, it does. You know, and, and, and quite honestly, yesterday was a, was a tough day for me in the afternoon. You know, um, this is one of those times where going straight through really kind of wore on me yesterday. Um, so today, you know, we, I don't know if you noticed, but they were bringing me water and, and, and ice and uh, cold towels a little bit more, just trying to help me through it and, and you know it's about building back that endurance um you know, hadn't really had to do it because for the most part with otas and mini camps it was half the day and you know then i had a big break um here it's you know i go from from here we're going i'll watch the tape we're going to meetings and, and then so somewhere along the way i got to find a break so but thank you for asking and then one more on all of this COVID 19 stuff i know you can't get enough of it <laughs> we, we, we all can't get enough of this Uh, If Washington's player vaccination rate doesn't get substantially higher, there will be particular onus on the Washington football team to do a great job of following the COVID-19 protocols for this coming season, as Washington did do last season. But this was Ron at his post-practice press conference on Friday on how following the COVID-19 protocols this year is more difficult than doing so last year. Yeah, it's harder um, than, than, than last year because it's open. I mean, you know, we're, we're moving around as a community freely now to a degree. 
And because of that, you know, you come into contact with more people. Uh, and unfortunately, you come into contact with more people that haven't been vaccinated. So you have to be extra careful, you know. And like I said, that's why I still carry my mask with me. I still put it on in certain areas. Um, and so you've got to constantly remind the guys, that, hey, we got to be careful. we got to be smart. you got to watch out for this or pay attention to that. Hey, you can't go out over here. Um, it's hard. This year will be much more harder than last year. And unfortunately, the penalties will be much more severe than they were last year as well. Yeah, and you can hear in Ron's voice a fatigue and a frustration with this COVID-19 player vaccination issue. Seven Washington players already on the reserve COVID-19 list. Even if they all don't have COVID-19, and at least one does not, right? Deron Payne on Sunday evening tweeting that he doesn't have COVID-19. But in some ways, it doesn't matter because Payne being on the reserve COVID-19 list is an indication that he hasn't been vaccinated for COVID-19. We can't say that with certainty, but you're more likely to be on that list if you're not vaccinated for COVID-19 than you are if you have been vaccinated for COVID-19. And again, this is a football issue. I'm not here to lecture about whether people should get vaccinated for COVID-19. I'm just saying from strictly a football perspective, Washington already having guys out due to COVID-19 protocols isn't good. Maybe the player vaccination rate for COVID-19 does continue to improve for the Washington football team. I'm actually pleasantly surprised that the rate has gone up as much as it has over the last few weeks. I would anticipate an update from Ron at his post-practice press conference on Monday. And let's also throw this into the mix. If, in fact, most of these Washington players on the reserve COVID-19 list do have COVID-19, is that not in some ways comparable to getting vaccinated for COVID-19 and that these guys will have the antibodies? I mean, I tweeted this on Sunday and I was half kidding, but Washington is going to have like near herd immunity by the time we get to week one, regardless of how many additional players get vaccinated for COVID-19. And I know, I know that having had COVID-19 isn't necessarily the same thing as getting vaccinated for COVID-19 because the amount of antibodies that people develop off having had COVID-19 can vary. But should that not enter into the protocols? Like if you have had COVID-19, you should at least be tested for antibodies and perhaps be deemed as essentially being vaccinated against COVID-19. I don't know, something to think about. Anyway, we now shift to football. So Washington conducting the opening portion of 2021 training camp in Richmond marked Washington holding training camp in Richmond to at least some extent For an eighth time in nine years, 2013 through 2019, and now in 2021. Camp in 2020 was done entirely at the team facility in Ashburn, of course, due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Ron Rivera, at his post-practice press conference on Saturday, was asked about his thoughts on camp in Richmond and on potentially, again, doing at least a portion of camp in Richmond. Well, I, I like what we had out here. I do. I, I, I thought the fields uh, were wonderful, um, well-prepared. Uh, they were ready for us to go. Um, there's obviously more than enough room for us to, to be able to practice, um, to, to do the extra stuff in terms of the weight room, the training room, the locker rooms. Unfortunately, we had to have a split locker room uh, because of the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the protocols. Um, that was a little disappointing. Um, I think it's a nice setup for the fans. Uh, in terms of coming and bringing the energy. And, um, you know, it, it's the fields, again, I think is probably the biggest thing for me because if you can take a break on your fields and, and not tear them down going into the season, that's big. And, and so, you know, we'll sit down and we'll discuss it. 
and uh, you know, I, but I, but I did like the field. I really did. I thought that was I thought this was an, a, a, a very worthwhile facility for us. He kept mentioning the fields in that answer, and I think there's a reason for that because the fields at the Bon Secours Training Center for years have not had a very good reputation. And whenever it would rain, not only would you have to go somewhere else to practice because there is no indoor facility at which to practice at the Bon Secours Training Center, but the fields, shall we say, did not take to the rain all that well. And you would have puddles and mud on the fields for like days on end, uh, it felt like. Uh, when it would rain there. So I don't know if they improved the fields or not, but I thought it was interesting and notable uh, that Ron kept referencing the fields in that answer. Remember two key points about Washington beginning its 2021 training camp in Richmond. Point number one, Washington did not get paid to hold part of the team's 2021 training camp in Richmond, and in fact, paid money out. Washington's initial deal with Richmond, so talking about 2013 through 2019, featured Richmond covering the cost of the Bon Secours Training Center and featured Richmond paying Washington $500,000 per year to conduct training camp in Richmond. The arrangement for this year reportedly was Washington actually paying Richmond $100,000 to rent out the Bon Secours Training Center. Point number two, Washington incurred the cost of paying $100,000 to rent out the Bon Secours Training Center and the cost of shipping equipment to Richmond for just five days of training camp, right? This past Tuesday through this past Saturday, July 27th through July 31st. All of that money and effort for just five days. I mean, on the surface, that seems like a lot for a little, does it not? Now, Ron has said that the reason, or at least a reason, for doing part of camp in Richmond this year was to appeal to the fans in the area, but I do wonder if this is something that the team will continue to do. The team certainly can continue to do this if the team wants to continue to do this. Like Washington certainly can afford the costs. Uh, The new stadium potentially being in Virginia could have something to do with Washington's training camp future in Richmond as well. With the quarterback competition, to whatever extent it exists, the biggest item from the last few days is that Kyle Allen on Saturday tweaked his left ankle. Uh, That's the one that was injured. Kyle in the loss to the New York Giants at FedEx Field in week nine of last season, suffered a dislocated left ankle and a reported small fracture. He underwent surgery last November 13th. We know that Ron says that there is a quarterback competition for the QB1 and has told us that that competition consists of Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke. How about QB2? Is there a quarterback competition for QB2? How does Ron size that up with the quarterback group of Fitzpatrick, Heineke, Allen, and Steven Montez. More from Ron on Saturday. Well, I think it's a mix of those guys. You know, Kyle's starting to come on. Uh, he did tweak his ankles, bad ankle a little bit today. Um, but he's starting to come on and get back into the mix. I mean, we have, you know, three guys that we really truly like, and we like Steven Montez as a young developmental guy. I mean, this is a good situation for us. Uh, you know, we, we have the makings, I think, of what could potentially be a solid foundation on offense, and we'll see how it melds together as we continue and go through camp. You know, the first real test will be in, in a couple of weeks when we have a first preseason game. Uh, it'll be an opportunity to see where we are, uh, absolutely. But I do like the competition. I do like trying to create that, make sure the guys understand that, that, that that's what it's going to come down to is you know, not just who the one is, but who the two is as well. For what it's worth, there were a lot of interceptions thrown during Saturday's training camp practice. Also, for whatever it's worth, the word is that Taylor Heineke so far has been okay 
but has not been great enough to where you really feel like he's threatening Ryan Fitzpatrick for the QB1 spot. We're less than a week into training camp, but uh, I did want to relay that to you. That is the word from Washington football team training camp so far. Sticking with the offense, a guy who stood out during Saturday's practice was DeAndre Carter. So the Washington football team on April 1st announced the signing of Carter as an unrestricted free agent. He is a receiver and a return man. This coming season will be Carter's age 28 season. He is small. Uh, Washington lists Carter as being just 5'8 and 188 pounds, but he is fast. Carter in March 2015 at the Sacramento State Pro Day ran a 4-4-4-40. He came into the NFL with the Baltimore Ravens as an undrafted rookie at a Sacramento State in 2015. He joins Washington having spent time with the Ravens, Oakland Raiders, New England Patriots, San Francisco 49ers, Philadelphia Eagles, Houston Texans, and Chicago Bears. He hasn't caught many passes, 34 receptions over 43 career regular season games, but he has returned a bunch of punts and a bunch of kickoffs, 63 career regular season punt returns, an average of 9.35 yards per punt return. That's quite good. He also has 45 career regular season kickoff returns, an average of 21.84 yards per kickoff return. That's nothing special, but Washington could have Danny Johnson on kickoff returns again. He did a pretty good job on kickoff returns last season. I believe this. Carter has a decent chance of making the season opening roster, mainly because he has been a good punt return man, and Washington has been abysmal on punt returns each of the last four seasons. And with Curtis Samuel out with his first groin ailment and now being on the reserve COVID-19 list, DeAndre Carter has gotten a lot of work during training camp practices so far. And like I said, on Saturday, he looked good. Ron, on Saturday, on DeAndre Carter. Well, you know, he, he also made a couple of really tough cu- catches as well today, and, and he's, he's done it all off camp. Um, you know, he is a dual returner. Uh, he's got NFL experience, um, and, and, and that's one of the things that attracted to us. That's why we signed him in the offseason, obviously, because uh, to, to have a dual returner, it gives you more flexibility with your, with your game day roster. So um, there are some things that, 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 that he brings to the table in terms of his skill set. He can play the slot. And if you get in a situation, you can also play the X receiver. So, again, there's that position flex that we talked about. Uh, he's a guy that um, also runs well with the ball in his hands. So, again, looking at what we do offensively, that, you know, he's more than a fit in terms of, of looking for a guy that, that can do those types of things. Another guy getting a lot of praise for his work at Washington football team training camp so far is Landon Collins. He has looked good. He has looked healthy. Landon Last regular season, playing in just seven games due to a ruptured Achilles tendon that was suffered in the 25-3 win over the Dallas Cowboys at FedEx Field in Week 7. He, of course, was not having a very good season up until that point. Although, interestingly, in that game, he was having a good game, and then he got hurt and was done for the season. But he has been good to go from the get-go for training camp here, and he's done a nice job. Ron Rivera at his post-practice press conference on Saturday on Landon. Well, I think, first of all, he's come in with a different resolve, a little bit more uh, understanding of, of, of the concepts that we use as far as our defense is concerned. You know, last year, going through what we had to go through and then trying to, to, to learn it on the run, um, I, I think there was, there was some hesitation uh, in terms of picking it up. But you did see some of the really good moments last year until he got hurt. And I think he's just pretty much picking up where he left off, and that is he's got a better understanding of how we're doing things, the things that we, we do. Um, and kudos to what he did in, in the offseason during OTAs and minicamp 
you know, mimicking uh, the defense, being back there with Chris and, and, and watching practice, watching the way guys were doing things. I think that really helped him. Um, and I think he's really taken the kind of steps that we're hoping he, he, he will. Um, he's a tremendous talent. And, and, and that's one of the things that you really like about who he is. Um, and, and quite honestly, once we put pads on, I'm not too worried about him because, uh, you know, his strength is his, his, phys- his physical play. Another interesting item from Ron on Saturday had to do with Washington's depth at edge rusher. What does Washington have at edge rusher beyond Chase Young and Montez Sweat? Both Chase and Montez played a bunch last season, during which Washington's top two backup edge rushers were, right, Ryan Kerrigan and Ryan Anderson, and both of those guys are gone. And to NFC East rivals, the two backup edge rushers named Ryan each left for a division rival. Kerrigan signed with the Philadelphia Eagles as it turned out that Washington had no interest in re-signing him, and Anderson signed with the New York Giants. And so what Washington now has as its apparent primary backup edge rushers are three seventh-round picks over the last two years, James Smith-Williams, William Bradley King, and Shaka Tony as Washington has not signed any prominent veteran edge rushers since free agency started. We have seen some veteran edge rushers come off the board recently. The Pittsburgh Steelers signed Melvin Ingram III, MI3. Can I call him MI3? I'm going to call him MI3. Remember, as I said a few weeks ago, I'm actually AG3. I'm Al Galdi III. Uh, We'll have to see if RG3 approves of all of this. But anyway, the Steelers signed Melvin Ingram, and the Baltimore Ravens signed Justin Houston. Washington, though, at least so far, has opted not to sign any prominent veteran edge rushers in free agency. Ron on Saturday asked about the depth at edge rusher beyond Chase Young and Montez Sweat. Well, very confident in those guys to begin with. Um, very confident in what we've seen from, 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 from James William Smith. Um, he's done a great job. He's a guy that we drafted last year for, for this type of role. Um, we like the two young guys that we drafted uh, this year. You know, uh, Both BK and Shaka are young guys that have an opportunity, and, and they've been practicing very well. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's going to be an interesting battle. If there is a veteran guy out there that we like at the right situation and circumstances, yeah, maybe we, we'll, we'll go out and bring him in. But right now, we're, we're giving our young guys an opportunity to show us what they can do. So how about what Ron said there about James Smith-Williams, or as Ron called him, James Williams-Smith? Very confident in what we've seen from, 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 from James Williams-Smith. Yeah, whatever his name is. Uh, Washington, with the second of its two seventh-round picks in the 2020 NFL Draft, took James Smith-Williams out of NC State. The pick that Washington used on James Smith-Williams was acquired in March 2019 when Washington traded a sixth-round pick in the 2020 Draft to the Denver Broncos for quarterback Case Keenum in the 2020 Seventh-round pick. Washington lists James Smith-Williams as being 6'4 and 265 pounds. He played some last season. He, in the 2020 regular season, played on 9.38% of Washington's defensive snaps and ranked number three on the team in special team snaps at 63.24%. And Smith-Williams is an interesting story. There's an element of the unknown with this guy. He, in 29 career games over five seasons at NC State, total just eight sacks. He dealt with a number of injuries, but the guy is smart. He has a degree in business supply chain management from NC State. Uh, Did have a standing job offer from IBM whenever he was ready. And James Smith-Williams also has someone who underwent a massive physical transformation under the guidance of the NC State strength and conditioning program. It is said that he put on an estimated 70 pounds uh, during his time there at NC State. Ron clearly likes James Smith-Williams, or is it James William Smith? Now we're confused. 
Very confident what we've seen from, 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 from James William Smith. Yes, Ron. Well, whatever the guy's name is, the guy has promised, and it would appear, at least right now, that that guy is Washington's top backup edge rusher. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The month of July was an atrocious month for the Nationals. There's no other way to put it. July 2021 goes down as one of the worst months in Nats history. Really one of the worst months that any D.C. sports team has ever had. Think about it. The Nats went 8-18 eight and 18 in July to say nothing of dismantling the team via trading away eight players. To say nothing of the horrendous Steven Strasburg news, him undergoing surgery for thoracic outlet syndrome. To say nothing of a game being suspended due to gunfire outside Nationals Park. To say nothing of a second major COVID-19 outbreak for the Nats. To say nothing of countless injuries for the Nats in the month of July. But August did begin with a dramatic win. A 6-5 walk-off win over the Chicago Cubs at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. And on Monday night, we will have the Nats debut of one of the top players who the Nats got back in their sell-off. Josiah Gray will be making his Nats debut on Monday night when we have game one of a four-game series against the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park, a 7.05 first pitch. Josiah Gray is one of the more highly touted starting pitching prospects in baseball. I'm very excited to watch Josiah Gray pitch. The Nats on Sunday announced that Gray had reported to the team and been activated. He, per MLB Pipeline, is the Nats' number two prospect and the number 41 overall prospect in baseball, and he is one of the prized pickups in what ended up being an all-time sell-off by the Nats. The 2021 MLB trade deadline was on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. The Nats, over a period of a little more than 24 hours, traded a total of eight players for a total of 12 prospects. The Nats farm system, which was essentially barren, has received a much-needed infusion of new blood and talent. Now, do the bulk of these guys work out? Who knows? We have no idea. But this needed to be done. It was done. And I applaud Mike Rizzo, aka The Ninja, for executing this. Yes, that's the sound right there of The Ninja Strike. I applaud Ninja Rizzo for doing as he did. And I applaud the learners for approving this because I had my doubts that the learners would approve a big-time sell-off, but they clearly did, and so I give them credit for that. All of the Nats' significant free agents-to-be were traded, and then some. 
we had the blockbuster trade with the Los Angeles Dodgers, right? Starter Max Scherzer and shortstop Trey Turner to the Dodgers for four prospects, including the Dodgers' top two prospects for MLB Pipeline, those being Gray and catcher Cabert Ruiz. The Nats on Friday officially announced the trade. The Nats late on Thursday night traded outfielder Kyle Schwarber to the Boston Red Sox. The Nats on Friday afternoon traded catcher Jan Gomes, infielder outfielder Josh Harrison, and cash considerations to the Oakland A's. The Nats on Friday afternoon traded starting pitcher John Lester to the St. Louis Cardinals for outfielder Lane Thomas. You want proof that Mike Rizzo is a ninja? He incredibly got a team to give up something for Lester. The same John Lester, who at the time of the trade had an ERA of 502 and a whip of 159 over 16 starts this season. That is a ninja strike. You get the Cardinals to give up something, anything, for John Lester. Yes, the ninja struck on the St. Louis Cardinals. This guy who the Nats got back from the Cardinals, this outfielder, Lane Thomas, I mean, his stock has come down, but whatever, man. And this is someone who has been well thought of to at least some degree. Lane Thomas entered the 2021 season recognized as the fastest base runner and best defensive outfielder in the Cardinals organization by Baseball America. The Nats on Thursday afternoon traded reliever Brad Hand to the Toronto Blue Jays, and the Nats early Friday morning traded reliever Daniel Hudson to the San Diego Padres for pitcher Mason Thompson and infielder Jordy Barley. Thompson was the Padres' number nine prospect for MLB Pipeline. He, on Saturday, was recalled to the Nats' active roster. How about this? Six of the Nats' top 16 prospects right now per MLB Pipeline are players acquired via these trades. Six of the top 16. Now, that does say a lot about the state of the Nats' farm system prior to these trades, but that also says something about what the Nats got back. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Robert Krakauer. He writes, today is a good day to be a Nats fan. Some are going to get hung up on losing Turner and Scherzer, but it was time to move on. I love that we maximize the value of our most valuable assets. This month went from being a terrible month to being a great one. This was the best outcome of the 2021 season. Rizzo wins again. I am not claiming to know a single thing about any of the prospects All I know and care about is Rizzo likes them. Clearly he does, or he wouldn't have traded for them. That's what I'm basing my opinion off of. I'm sure you're getting more than a few emails from distraught fans. I wanted to ensure that I added my name to the category of delighted fans. You know what, Robert? I've actually gotten quite a bit of feedback in favor of what the Nats did. Now, more than a few people are not happy that Trey Turner got traded. A lot of people differentiate between the free agents to be and Trey Turner. As I explained on Friday's show, episode 112, there are baseball reasons for the Nationals not wanting to pay Trey Turner the mega money it's almost certainly going to take to lock him up to a long-term contract extension. So I get where the Nats are coming from on Trey Turner. I know not everyone does, but trust me on this, there are baseball reasons not to throw $250 million, $300 million at a guy who in year one of the extension is already in his 30s. That's a frightening proposition. This is what gets teams in trouble all of the time with these big money contracts. The number one reason so many of these mega money deals in baseball don't work out is that teams pay guys in their 30s for what those guys did in their 20s. And that more often than not in this PED testing era is a recipe for disaster. So we had all of the trades 
and the resetting of the direction of the Nationals franchise. And then we had actual baseball at Nationals Park over the weekend. And the Nats won two of three games against the Chicago Cubs. A 4-3 win on Friday night, a 6-3 loss on Saturday night, and then a 6-5 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon. And what a game on Sunday afternoon for Yadiel Hernandez. Four for five with two solo homers, an RBI single, another single, and a nice defensive play. Yadiel blasted a walk-off and lead-off opposite field homer to left field in the bottom of the ninth inning, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Yadiel smashed a one-out opposite field solo homer to left field in the bottom of the seventh for a 5-3 Nats lead. Neither homer was some, you know, all-time shot, okay? The walk-off homer went and projected 384 feet for StatCast. The homer in the bottom of the seventh went a mere 353 projected feet per stat cast, but a homer is a homer, and Yadiel hit two of them on Sunday. He also had a two-out RBI single in the Nats' three-run third. He had a leadoff single in the bottom of the second, and he made a good-looking, running, leaping, and backhanded catch of a Robinson Chirinos first-pitch liner while running onto a muddy and sloppy warning track for the second out in the top of the second inning. Yeah, it was raining, especially early in the game on Sunday afternoon. The warning track was a mess. I mean, that was the slop. And Yadiel running into the slop makes that nice running, leaping, backhanded catch. You know, he's not known for his defense, but that was a good-looking defensive play that Yadiel made in that top of the second inning. So tremendous game for Yadiel Hernandez on Sunday. He had a very good series. Uh, Yadiel pinch hit in game one, was an at starting left fielder and cleanup batter in games two and three. To give you an idea of the state of the Nationals lineup right now, Yadiel Hernandez has been the cleanup batter the last two games. But Yadiel in this series, six for nine with two homers, two doubles, two singles, and five RBI. Yadiel in the 4-3 win over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Friday night had a pinch two-out RBI double in the bottom of the six for a 4-1 Nats lead. Yadiel in the 6-3 loss to the Cubs at Nationals Park on Saturday night, one for three, had a two-out opposite field RBI double off the glove of Cubs left fielder Ian Happ in the bottom of the first, despite having been down in the count at one point, one, two. It's tricky with Yadiel Hernandez because he's in his age 33 season and because of his defensive limitations, he's not seen as an everyday player, but the guy can hit. And we've seen that this season. He's got the unique skill of being able to pinch hit. You know, not everyone can do that. And as we saw over these last two games here, he can start and still do quite well, as was the case, especially on Sunday. But the biggest takeaway for me from the Nat series against the Cubs was that the youth movement truly is on. And the Nationals are appropriately treating the final two months of this season now as, I don't want to say extended spring training, but certainly as extended, uh, shall we say, experimentation time, okay? Because guys who otherwise would not be playing a bunch are playing a bunch. And this, to me, is a good thing. Victor Robles was the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter in games two and three in the series of not playing over the Nats' previous three games due to tightness in his lower back. And yes, I did say Victor Robles was the number one batter. Robles was back to being the Nats leadoff batter. He was supposed to be the Nats leadoff batter going into the season. David Martinez quickly pulled the plug on that, had buried Robles in the number eight spot, if not the number nine spot behind the starting pitcher. But now Robles is potentially the Nats every game leadoff batter again. I hope that that's the case. I hope that Robles is the Nats every game leadoff batter moving forward. Not that he's had a great offensive season. He hasn't, far from that. But it's time to find out whether Victor Robles is up to the task and whether he can truly hit major league pitching. Put him out there as your every game center fielder, your every game number one batter, and let's see what transpires 
over the final two months of this national season. Carter Keboom was the Nats' starting third baseman in all three games in the series. Luis Garcia was the Nats' number five batter in all three games in the series. All of this was great to see. All three of these guys should be everyday players for the Nats the rest of the season. Not because all three are great players, that's far from the case, but because all three guys have been highly touted players to varying degrees. From a position player standpoint, nothing matters more the rest of this Nats season than finding out whether Robles, Keeboom, and Garcia are building blocks for the future or the Nats need to look elsewhere. You know, give me less of Gerardo Parra. And we did see less of Parra over the weekend, although we had a nice pinch single in the bottom of the eighth in the 6-5 walk-off win over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. But less of the baby shark. We love the baby shark, but he's not a piece for the future. Give me less of Alcides Escobar. Now, we did not see much of him over the weekend. He started just one game, game one of the series. Davey Martinez in his post-game press conference on Sunday afternoon revealed that Escobar had needed an MRI exam on his left wrist off a hit-by-pitch. He's been hit by like a million pitches here during his brief time with the Nats. But again, nothing against Alcides Escobar, but he's not a piece for the future. So I think his playing time moving forward should be limited here. Play younger guys, play potential building blocks, as opposed to these veterans like Para and Escobar moving forward. Robles, Keeboom, and Garcia. Now they had mixed series, okay? I mean, Robles looked good in the 6-3 loss on Saturday night, had multiple good plate appearances, finished one for four with a single and a walk. Uh, but Robles in the 6-5 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon, 0 for 3. Although he did have a walk, and it was an impressive walk, a two-out six-pitch walk, and the Nats one run fourth despite having been down to the count at 1.12. Keeboom had a decent weekend at the plate, but he was a mess defensively at third base. So 4-3 win on Friday night. Keeboom 2 for 3 with two singles and a walk, but he allowed a hard-hit grounder to go under his glove on what ended up being a two-out, two-run first-pitch single by Patrick Wisdom in the top of the eighth to cut the Nats' lead to 4-3. And then in the 6-3 loss on Saturday night, Keeboom 0 for 3 with an RBI. He had a one-out first-pitch RBI sack fly in the Nats' two-run eighth, but he had a one-out throwing error in the top of the third off a of Wilson Contreras grounder. Keeboom on the play made a nice backhanded stab while crossing into foul territory, but the throw was errant, and the throw resulted in a throwing error. And then Keeboom in the 6-5 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon, one for three with a single and a walk. The single was good, went out single, bottom of the fifth. He was down in the count at one point, one, two. And then with Luis Garcia, the most interesting thing to me with him was we saw him at both second base and shortstop over the weekend. He's primarily viewed as a second baseman, but there is this thinking of, well, he could play shortstop. And now that the Nationals have dealt away Trey Turner and don't have an immediate shortstop in the future, maybe Luis Garcia can be that. He was in that starting second baseman in game one of the series. He was in that starting shortstop in games two and three of the series. He hit a homer, by the way, in game one of the series. The 4-3 win over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Friday night. A one-out solo homer to right center field of Jake Arrieta in the bottom of the second inning. Garcia didn't do much uh, the rest of the series. Just one hit. He had a single, and then that's two-run eighth in the 6-3 loss on Saturday night. That was his only hit uh, the rest of the series. He went 0-3. Garcia did with a walk in the 6-5 a walk-off win on Sunday afternoon. Speaking of drawing walks, Juan Soto got walked a plenty over the weekend and figures to get walked a ton moving forward now. I mean, now that he is the one main threat in the lineup, I mean, Josh Bell to a lesser extent, but uh, it feels like Juan Soto is not going to be seeing many pitches to hit the rest of this season. I guess we'll see. But Soto was an at starting right fielder in all three games in the series. He went two for 10 with a double, a single, and four walks, two of which were intentional. Three of the walks came in the 6-5 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon. Soto in that game, 0 for 2 with three walks. Drew a two-out intentional walk 
in the Nats' three-run third, during which, by the way, he scored all the way from first due to the Cubs throwing the ball all over the place and nobody initially covering home of Josh Bell's RBI single that scored two runs. Uh, Soto drew a two-out eight-pitch walk in the Nats' one-run fourth, and then Soto drew a one-out intentional walk in the bottom of the eighth inning. He had, Soto did, kind of a rough game in the 6-3 loss on Saturday night. Now, he got on base twice, one for four with a double and a walk, but he left five men on base. He grounded into a game-ending double play in the bottom of the ninth. By the way, that's now 19 double plays for Soto this season. That's a high number, man. And it's not like he'd been a huge double play culprit in his career. Soto over his first three regular seasons grounded into a total of 21 double plays. He already this season is grounded into 19 double plays. Uh, And also, Soto had a crucial run scoring error in the loss on Saturday night. Came with two outs in the top of the first, the baseball going off his glove and behind him on a full count liner off the bat of Patrick Wisdom. I mentioned Josh Bell. He had a good series. And man, is he in a good place offensively these days. So Bell was in that starting first baseman and number four batter in the 4-3 win over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Friday night. One for three with a solo homer and a walk. The solo shot, a two-out solo homer to left field on a 1-2 pitch from Jake Arrieta and the bottom of the fifth. And the homer was some shot, a projected 430 feet. That baseball win for StatCast. Bell did not start the Game 2 loss, the 6-3 loss of the Cubs at Nationals Park on Saturday night, but he did come off the bench and lace a pinch RBI single in the Nats' two-run eighth. And then Bell in the 6-5 walk-off win over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, starting first baseman, number three batter, two for five with two two-out RBI singles. He had a two-out opposite field RBI single to left field that scored two runs in the Nats' three-run third. And Bell had a two-out RBI single in the Nats' one-run fourth inning. Uh, We're seeing a lot of Josh Bell. Ryan Zimmerman did start at first base and serve as a number three batter in the 6-3 loss on Saturday night, but he went 0-3, for had a five-pitch walk in the Nats' two-run eighth. It was interesting. Zimmerman spoke to reporters on Saturday, endorsed the Nationals' sell-off, but also acknowledged that the sell-off impacts his decision whether to come back next season. I do think we're seeing the final season for Ryan Zimmerman as a major league player, you know, I suppose if he really wanted to, he can maybe continue his career elsewhere, but I'm not sure how much of a market there will be for Zimmerman this offseason. And truth be told, I'm not sure that the Nationals are going to be welcoming him back with open arms. Not, not that this is contentious or anything, but he's an older player. You know, he's not a positionally versatile player. He's not having a great season. I think now is kind of a good time to salute Ryan Zimmerman. He's an all-time great NAD. And uh, I think he kind of sees the writing on the wall as well. He has acted and spoken this season like someone who may well be playing his last season. And you kind of got that sense listening to what Zimmerman had to say to reporters on Saturday. In terms of the Nats pitching in winning two of three over the Cubs. So Eric Fetty was the Nats starter in the 6-5 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon. I thought it was okay. You know, there was some good, there was some not so good. He ultimately allowed three runs in six innings. On the one hand, he had eight strikeouts versus one walk. And only gave up four hits. You like that. But on the other hand, two of the four hits were homers by Rafael Ortega, who was out of his mind in this game. He finished the game with three homers into single. And Fetty threw a lot of pitches, 108 pitches, 62 strikes versus 46 balls. Now, Davey Martinez, again, because we're sort of into this extended, you know, experimental phase of the regular season, allowed Fetty to stay in the game for longer than I think Davey otherwise would have. And that's fine. I think that's good. Uh, But, you know, the results were mixed here. Three runs in six innings, gave up two homers, gave up a run in the top of the first on a leadoff homer by Ortega. And then Fetty allowed two runs in the top of the sixth, leadoff single by Andrew Romine, and a full count two-run homer by Ortega, despite him having been down in the count at one point, one-two. You know, Fetty had been having a nice season, but this is now six starts for Fetty, 
since being reinstated from the 10-day injured list, which he was on with a left oblique strain. And the bottom line is, Fetty, over the six starts, has allowed 22 earned runs in 27 and a third innings. He just hasn't been that good since he came off the 10-day IL. His ERA for the season is 501. You know, at the end of the day, you could say, well, this was good, that was good. You know, I mentioned the eight strikeouts versus one walk. That's good. I mean, I don't want to just dismiss that. But Eric Fetty is not a guy who was drafted to have an ERA of 501 in what is now his fifth season in which he's pitching at the major league level to at least some extent. And yet that's where we are. 17 starts for Fetty this season. He's got an ERA of 501. He's got to be better than that. He's supposed to be better than that. And he hasn't been on the year. Joe Ross struggled in the Nationals game two loss, the 6-3 loss on Saturday night. Five runs, four earned in four and a third innings. He gave up seven hits, a homer, two doubles, and four singles. Did have five strikeouts versus one walk. Did have another hit. Uh, Joe Ross is a really good hitting pitcher. He had a two-out, four-count single in the bottom of the second, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. But Joe Ross, you know, like Fetty, up and down this year. And Joe Ross now, 18 starts on the season, ERA of four. Now, that's not terrible, And Ross, the thing with him that stands out more than anything is just the Jekyll and Hyde nature of his season. Joe Ross now has five starts this season in which he has allowed at least four earned runs. He also has seven starts this season in which he has allowed zero earned runs. It's feast or famine with Joe Ross, and it was more famine uh, than feast, unfortunately, on Saturday night. And then Paolo Espino was quite good in the Nationals' Game 1 win, the 4-3 victory on Friday night. One run in five and a third inning, six strikeouts, versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, two doubles, and two singles. I love my guy, Paolo. What a season he's had, you know, considering what he is, right? A journeyman in his 30s, a guy who, you know, no one really gave two thoughts of in terms of going into the season, him being a factor for the Nationals at the major league level. And yet here we are now. He has thrown 61 and a third innings over 24 games, including eight starts this year. He has an ERA of 308. He has a whip of 104. He has 46 strikeouts versus 11 walks. With the Nationals bullpen, so a few things here. Number one, Kyle Finnegan now pretty clearly is the Nationals closer with both Brad Hand and Daniel Hudson gone. And Finnegan looks good. I mean, we'll see ultimately how he performs, right? But so far, so good for Kyle Finnegan as the Nationals closer. He got the job done in the 6-5 walk-off win over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon. Finnegan tossing a scoreless top of the ninth despite a uh, catcher's interference error by Rene Rivera with the first batter in the inning Patrick Wisdom batting. And Finnegan closed out the 4-3 win for the Nats over the Cubs at Nationals Park on Friday night. A scoreless top of the ninth in which he induced a big 4-6-3 double play off giving up a leadoff single to Jason Hayward. So you like that. You also have, though, with Hand gone, with Hudson gone, some new names and some fresh faces in that Nationals bullpen. And among them is a guy who I think super quickly is going to become a Nationals fan favorite. And that is this guy, Gabe Klobositz, AKA Klobo. All right. So Gabe Klobositz is a 6'7, 270 pound stirrups wearing reliever who the Nats took in the 36th round in the 2017 MLB draft. He made his major league debut in the Nats win on Friday night. His pitching came in the Cubs two run A. Things did not go uh, swimmingly. He faced four batters, gave up two hits, a one out double by Wilson Contreras on a 1-2 pitch and a two-out, two-run first pitch single by Patrick Wisdom to cut the Nats' lead to 4-3. But we also saw Clovo in the 6-5 walk-off win on Sunday afternoon, and he did well in that game. A perfect top 
of the seventh inning. So welcome to the Nationals, Gabe Klobositz, who just looks the part of a reliever. And uh, like I said, I think this guy very quickly is going to become one of the more popular Nationals. We did see in the win on Sunday a blow-up outing for Wander Suero. He was a debacle in the top of the eighth inning. Came into the game with the Nats holding a 5-3 lead, issued a one-out five-pitch walk to pinch hitter Wilson Contreras, and then gave up a one-out full-count game-tying two-run homer to Rafael Ortega, who, like I said, was out of his mind on Sunday, finished the game with three home runs, a single, and five RBI. But, you know, with Suero, there's good Suero and bad Suero, and as soon as he issued that one-out walker, Contreras, I said, that's it. This lead is going bye-bye this inning, and sure enough, it did. That was bad, Wander Suero, on display on Sunday afternoon. But the Nationals did win. They also, by the way, made an at least somewhat surprising roster move on Sunday, optioning Tanner Rainey to AAA Rochester. Uh, Rainey, you know, just came off the 10-day injured list. That's true. He has not, though, had a good season. Uh, 25 innings. He has an ERA of 7.20, a whip of 176. He's given up five home runs on the season. Another Nats item from the last few days, MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred on Friday announced that Starling Castro has been suspended 30 games without pay and has been assessed an undisclosed fine for violating Major League Baseball's joint domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. The Nats put out a statement said that they will be releasing Castro. Quote, we take all allegations of abuse and harassment very seriously. We fully support the commissioner's decision and will be releasing Starling Castro upon the completion of his suspension. Per the terms of the policy, we will have no further comment on this matter. End quote. So the way that Davey Martinez and Mike Rizzo had spoken about Castro led you to believe that uh, Davey and Rizzo certainly believed that Castro was guilty of whatever he was accused of. We still don't know the specifics of what he has been accused of, and there still have been no criminal charges filed against Darling Castro, but MLB did its investigation, and Davey and Rizzo spoke in a way that really indicates uh, Davey and Rizzo have been told some things or suspect some things to where there's just not much doubt, at least in their minds, that Darling Castro is guilty, and now he's gone. And uh, certainly, if he's guilty of whatever he's been accused of, he should be gone. From a baseball perspective, though, it was a shame what happened here because Starling Castro was finally hitting and the Nationals actually could have flipped him. Like as massive as the sell-off ended up being, it could have even been more of a sell-off had Starling Castro uh, not gotten into trouble as he apparently has, or at the very least not been accused of whatever it is uh, that he's been accused of. But clearly, if he's guilty of any of this stuff, you know, I mean, again, the policy says it all. Joint domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse policy. You can't have that in your organization. And uh, the Nationals will not, like I said, they'll be releasing him upon the conclusion of his suspension. So the Nats now are 49 and 56 on the season. Don't look now, <laughs> but they're only six and a half games behind the National League East leading New York Mets. The NL East continues to be by far the worst division in Major League Baseball. Four of the five teams have losing records. Four of the five teams have negative run differentials. As much as the Nats have gutted their roster, I would not be surprised if the Nats stay relevant in the standings for at least a little while longer, you know, like say until September, maybe even well into September. We've seen weird things happen before teams sell off and still actually play halfway decent baseball. I would not be stunned if we see that from the Nats here. But of course, all of that has to do with the division, which just is not very good. All right, let us now talk some Wizards. 
the damn Washington Wizards. Yes, thank you, Stephen A. So big day in the NBA on Monday. It is at 6 p.m. Eastern that NBA teams can begin negotiating with free agents. Teams cannot begin to sign free agents until this coming Friday, August 6th at 12.01 p.m. Eastern. But NBA free agency essentially begins Monday evening at 6 Eastern. And yes, uh, that's when teams, for the first time, will be speaking with free agents because there's no way that any NBA team would ever speak to a free agent before that NBA team is allowed to speak to free agents. Yeah, right. Uh, tampering goes on all the time in the NBA, as we know. But uh, technically, the Wizards trading away of Russell Westbrook is not yet official. Uh, that's about to change this coming week. But the big news that broke last Thursday night, the night of the NBA draft, that the Wizards had traded Russell Westbrook in second round picks in the 2024 and 2028 NBA drafts to the Los Angeles Lakers for the number 22 pick in the 2021 NBA draft in three players, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Montrez Harrell, and Kyle Kuzma. That's technically not still official. That actually technically has not yet happened. If you go to the Wizards website, there's zero acknowledgement of that trade or anything like that. So everything will become official in the coming days. One thing we have learned over the last few days is that Russell Westbrook apparently wanted out. Uh, NBA insider Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report on Saturday reported that Westbrook did request a trade from the Wizards. I don't know that this necessarily means that Westbrook was like so unhappy with the Wizards. I think it may be more about Westbrook wanting to go to play with LeBron James and the Lakers. Of course, Russell Westbrook played his college ball at UCLA, but I think that's notable that this wasn't necessarily just the Wizards wanting to rid themselves of Westbrook's contract. This may well have been launched by Westbrook wanting out, seeing an opportunity to play with the Lakers who have been seeking a high-level veteran point guard. Uh, But whatever the case, I mean, Russell Westbrook on the move again, right? This will be four teams in four seasons for Westbrook, from the Oklahoma City Thunder to the Houston Rockets to the Wizards to the Lakers. All right, what I care about the most isn't Russell Westbrook to the Lakers. It's, well, what now for our Wizards? And what we still don't know with certainty is these three guys who the Wizards got back from the Lakers, KCP, Harrell, and Kuzma, are they here to stay or are they here to go? Are these guys going to be used as pieces in a bigger deal? It certainly doesn't seem likely that all three end up staying, but we'll see here, right? I mean, hopefully we get some answers in the coming days. One thing that's out there, though, and this also came from Jake Fisher on Saturday, is that the Wizards apparently are in on Spencer Dinwiddie of the Brooklyn Nets. Reported Fisher on Saturday, quote, the next name off the point guard market appears likely to be Spencer Dinwiddie to Washington, sources said, in a sign and trade that could reroute the newly acquired Kyle Kuzma or Montrez Harrell to Brooklyn, end quote. So Spencer Dinwiddie is an interesting guy. I mean, the Wizards do need a starting point guard now, and Dinwiddie can do that. He is, though, someone you have to look at with at least somewhat of a skeptical eye here. So he's going into his age 28 season. He is set to be an unrestricted free agent this summer due to having opted out of his contract. So like Fisher notes, this would have to be a sign and trade scenario. But Dinwiddie is coming off a torn right ACL. Uh, He underwent surgery to repair a torn right ACL this past January 4th. He, this past regular season, played in just three games. So you really would have to be confident in the knee to acquire Dinwiddie. You know, like the last thing you want is to spend assets on a guy who comes here and is a shell of what he used to be. He's also not a very good three-point shooter. And this was before the torn right ACL. Spencer Dinwiddie has shot just 32.2% on threes over the last four regular seasons. That's not very good. But Spencer Dinwiddie is a guy who can score. And he's coming off the best scoring season of his career in terms of his last true season. He only played, like I said, in three regular season games 
this past NBA season, but Dinwiddie in the 2019-2020 regular season averaged a career-best 20.6 points per game, averaged a career-best 31.3 points per 100 possessions, and he was number nine among all NBA point guards in ESPN's offensive real plus minus metric. So he is legitimately coming off a really good offensive season in terms of that 2019-2020 regular season. But A, you don't know about the knee. I mean, that's a big deal, a guy coming off a torn right ACL. B, not historically a good three-point shooter. And C, he does not have a sterling defensive reputation. Now, defense, so much of it is effort and coaching. Wes Unsell Jr. maybe looks at Spencer Dinwiddie and sees a guy who's capable of being better defensively. But just know, like, the reputation and the numbers do not back up a guy having been good defensively. So you'd have to wonder about that. The other thing, too, is this. I mean, Spencer Dinwiddie is not going to launch the Wizards into title contention. And if you're acquiring Spencer Dinwiddie, that is a sign that you're not rebuilding. Like, you wouldn't spend assets to get a guy going into his age 28 season, coming off a torn right ACL, if you're not trying to make the playoffs this coming season. So you'd have to do a whole lot more than acquiring Spencer Dinwiddie to make the Wizards beyond what they were with Russell Westbrook, which was a best-case scenario, what, number four through number six seed in the Eastern Conference. But Monday is a big day in the NBA, and this week is a big week in the NBA, especially for our team. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, thank you. And let's talk some Orioles before we call it a show. The O's on Sunday afternoon wrapping up a four-game split at the Detroit Tigers. A 6-2 loss on Thursday night, a 4-3 win on Friday night, a 5-2 win on Saturday night, but a 6-2 loss on Sunday afternoon. So the O's now are 37-67, and still with the worst record in the American League, although that nearly changed on Sunday. The Texas Rangers were poised to fall to 37-68 and and thus take over the coveted spot of having the worst record in the AL. But the Rangers scored three runs in the bottom of the ninth, a 4-3 win over the Seattle Mariners to get to 38-67. and So yes, the oh-so-tight race for who can suck the most in the American League continues between the Orioles and the Rangers. And the O's for now still have that spot. We'll see if that continues. Good weekend, though, for Ryan Mountcastle of the O's. He had a big series. I want to see more of this the rest of the season. Mountcastle started each of the final three games in the series as either the first baseman or DH. He went 6-13 to with a home or a double and four singles. We on Sunday afternoon did see Spencer Watkins struggle for a second consecutive start. Watkins in the 6-2 loss at the Tigers on Sunday afternoon. Four runs and five and two-thirds innings, although there's a little more to it than just that final line. So Watkins allowed three runs in the bottom of the first due to allowing four consecutive batters to reach base with two outs. Two two-out walks followed by a two-out RBI single and then a two-out two-run double. But Watkins then tossed scoreless second, third, fourth, and fifth innings before giving up a run in the bottom of the sixth. So a rough start to his outing, but he then settled down and was quite good. But Watkins was coming off what he did in the 7-3 loss to the Miami Marlins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards this past Tuesday night. Four runs in four innings. So to an extent, the uh, carriage has morphed back into a pumpkin for Spencer Watkins. Unique story, the O's selected his contract from AAA Norfolk on June 30th. He was taken by the Detroit Tigers in the 30th round of the 2014 MLB draft. Did not make his major league debut until making a relief appearance for the O's This past July 2nd, he had been good in each of his first three major league starts, but he has struggled now to varying degrees over his last two starts. But the Orioles starting pitching in games two and three of the series was really good. John Means in game three, his first good start since May 24th, more than two months. I mean, it's incredible 
that it had been that long since the Orioles' ace had truly authored a good outing, but Means in the 5-2 went at the Tigers on Saturday night. One run in six innings. He had six strikeouts versus one walk. He gave up just four hits, a homer, and three singles. Did issue a wild pitch, but he threw 66 of his 99 pitches for strikes. And like I said, this was Means' first good outing in more than two months. Of course, he wasn't pitching for a good chunk of that two-month stretch. Means was on the 10-day injured list from June 6th to July 20th with a left shoulder strain. But then since then, Means in the 9-3 loss at the Tampa Bay Rays on July 20th, five runs in five innings. And Means in the 5-4 win over the Nationals at Camden Yards, now two Sunday afternoons ago, four runs in six and two-thirds innings. Also pitching well over the weekend, Matt Harvey, who was good for a third consecutive start. So in someone's idea of a cruel joke, Harvey, who was not traded prior to the MLB trade deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern on Friday, now has a scoreless inning streak of 18 and a third innings. I mean, this is unreal what this guy is doing. He was so bad for so long, the O's end up not being able to trade him. And now he's pitching like a Cy Young candidate, 18 and a third scoreless innings consecutively. Harvey in the 4-3 win at the Tigers on Friday night, six and a third scoreless innings. He had five strikeouts versus no walks. He gave up six hits, a double and five singles. And this marked a third consecutive great start for Harvey. He and the Orioles' 5-0 win at the Kansas City Royals on July 18th tossed six scoreless innings. He and the Orioles' 5-3 win over the Nationals at Camden Yards now two Saturday nights ago tossed six scoreless innings. So yeah, I mean, go figure Matt Harvey. It's unbelievable the season this guy has had. Over his first seven starts, he had an ERA of 360. He then went on one of the worst runs you'll ever see a starting pitcher go on. 11-start stretch in which he allows 51 earned runs in 41 innings. He, prior to these last three starts, had an ERA for the season of 770, and yet now he's in the midst of a scoreless inning streak of 18 and a third innings. It makes no sense, and yet it is exactly what is going on here with Matt Harvey. Uh, So I mentioned the Orioles at the MLB trade deadline. They did not trade Matt Harvey. They did not trade a number of other potential trade chips. In fact, the Orioles made just one major league trade prior to the MLB trade deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern on Friday. The O's did not trade first baseman Trey Mancini, did not trade starting pitchers John Means and Matt Harvey, did not trade any of a number of relievers, Paul Fry, Tanner Scott, Cole Solcer, and Dylan Tate. The O's made one major league trade. They dealt infielder Freddie Galvis in cash considerations to the Philadelphia Phillies for minor league reliever Tyler Birch. Now, I'm glad the O's were at least able to trade away Galvis. Uh, Galvis is one of these veterans who the Orioles signed in the offseason, and they were ultimately able to flip him for something. January 26 is when the O's announced the signing of Galvis to a one-year contract. And, you know, he was decent uh, this year for the O's. 72 games, he had a war per baseball reference, a wins above replacement per baseball reference of 1.0 at the time of the trade. I mean, you know, that, that that's something. Like, that's something of service he can provide. Uh, but he was injured. So I, I, I really wasn't that confident the O's would be able to trade Galvis, but they were able to trade him. Uh, but the O's on June 27th put Galvis on the 10-day injured list with a right quadriceps strain. So you get something for Galvis, The guy who I really would have loved for the O's to have traded is, again, Harvey, but apparently there were no takers, and now the guy is pitching like Jim Palmer. I do believe that the O's eventually need to trade Trey Mancini, but that can wait until this coming offseason. You didn't have to do it by the Friday trade deadline. Mancini, understand, he's under team control through just next season, which will be his age 30 season. So to me, signing Trey Mancini to some mega money long-term contract extension 
just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I get it. He's a good player. I get it. He's a fan favorite. I get it. The great comeback story from colon cancer, missing all of last season. But from a baseball perspective, ultimately, Mancini is an asset that you need to maximize. And I don't think you need to be risking him leaving you for nothing after the 2022 season. Now, for whatever it's worth, Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager Mike Elias in a virtual press conference on Friday said that he hopes that Mancini will remain with the O's, quote, for as long as possible, end quote. But if you listen closely to what Elias said, he did not use the word extension when asked about the possibility of an extension directly. So if Elias is smart, he's looking to deal Mancini ultimately. Again, didn't have to be by Friday, but I just don't see the sense in keeping Mancini into next season when, again, he can up and leave you after next season. Uh, John Means is another guy, good player, under team control through the 2024 season. So you didn't have to trade him this year. You don't even have to trade him this offseason. You don't necessarily have to trade him, period. Uh, you know, but his, his, his value is pretty high with the job he's done this year. So I, I think you do have to consider dealing means, but you don't have to deal means. You have him under team control for seasons to come. And the relievers were tricky. On the one hand, they are relievers and thus fickle and thus need to be maximized as trade assets whenever going well as the Orioles are in the midst of this rebuild. But on the other hand, the relievers are all under team control for years to come. Fry is under team control through the 2024 season. Scott is under team control through the 2024 season. Salser is under team control through the 2025 season. And Tate is under team control through the 2025 season. So you can always trade these guys later. You didn't have to do it by the Friday deadline. Uh, Also for the O's over the last few days, very bad news regarding one of their top prospects. Uh, This perhaps has been lost in the shuffle, but D.L. Hall is likely done for the season. Elias in that virtual presser on Friday said that uh, D.L. Hall, a starting pitcher, is likely to miss the rest of the season due to a stress reaction in his left elbow. Uh, That's bad news. I mean, there's no other way to put it. Uh, D.L. Hall is ranked by MLB Pipeline as the Orioles' number four prospect and as the number 52 prospect in all of baseball. Uh, The O's took Hall with the number 21 overall pick in the 2017 MLB draft. We've been talking so much about the Nationals and Josiah Gray and how highly touted he is, and he is. Josiah Gray is ranked as the number 41 prospect in baseball per MLB pipeline. Well, D.L. Hall is ranked as the number 52 prospect in all of baseball, and now it looks like his season is done. The O's took Hall with the number 21 overall pick in the 2017 MLB draft. Next up for the O's, a three-game series at the New York Yankees, Monday night through Wednesday night. Jorge Lopez will start game one, which is Monday night at 7.05. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Big show on Tuesday with the Washington football team returning to training camp practice on Monday. We'll see if the team places anyone else on the reserve COVID-19 list. We'll see what's going on with our Wizards as NBA free agency begins on Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern in terms of teams being allowed to negotiate with free agents. Because, of course, no NBA team would ever negotiate with a free agent prior to when teams are allowed to do that. And Monday night, the Nationals debut of Josiah Gray. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Very confident what we've seen from, 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 from James William Smith. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, 
you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.